we're going to start. Hi, everybody. Uh, I am Jacebella Smith, and welcome to the online photo book book group. And Deb Hemley is my media coordinator, and she's going to keep us literally on track because it's the Wild West on Zoom, and we have a new episode. <laughs> Every time we're on it, we learn something. Um, I am so excited to be able to talk to Ben Brody, uh, my colleague and friend, uh, who put together something that we're going to try to unpack and it is so layered and I just I've been thinking about it for days and and I just frankly can't stop thinking about it because I see another uh, reflection from another direction like over and over again so I'm really excited to talk to you Ben because I think you're going to illuminate all these other corners I haven't even thought about yet but just to say a quick word um, you are the director of photography for ground truth and report for America um, so you provide training and mentorship um, you're all about independent editorial journalism and journalism that's on the local level uh, and the whole I think report for America could be called a, a national service mm -hmm. uh, organization. So you can tell us more about, about some of those things. And just quick housekeeping, we're going to have an unscripted conversation. I'm going to scroll through um, the PDF um, and uh, we leave time for, for questions and answers. And um, I think that uh, one of the things that happened for me when I was working my way through this book is I started to record just one word responses. Um, if anyone's taken my concept aware class, I talk all about punctum and we do something called punctum practice. And it is basically that idea of the emotional impact of a photograph. And so the the ways in which this hit on so many levels, I had this long, 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 long list. It was everything from cinematic to poignant to harrowing to suspenseful, uncanny, uh, terrorizing, gross, uh, funny, absurd, uh, grave. Um, I could go on, but um, the idea that you were able to bring us uh, into four different worlds simultaneously, actually. Could everybody mute themselves, please? We're getting feedback. Thanks. Um, you brought in these perspectives. So yes, you were a soldier, but you were a soldier and a photojournalist. You're showing us what that is like from a, a point of view of before going, while you're there, and after which already that's so meaty, then you're giving us a commentary on the military. You're seeing it from so many different sides, like simultaneously, and you're um, negotiating it, uh, you're revealing it, and then you're also doing the same on the media front. And let's just layer one more, and you're putting photography in for lack of a better word, I'm going to say service, but the, the relationship of photography affecting all those things, soldiers, non-soldiers, like citizens of countries that are at war, the military, the media. Um, so you have a lot to tell us. <laughs> and I think 
Yeah, apparently. And I think um, what I'll do is scroll. And if you want to start by giving us, I mean, I know the background, but hearing it from you, how potentially how you joined and the tours and, um, and we'll unpack this. Yeah. Um, I mean, so how I joined is, uh, I mean, it's a long story and I've <laughs> Google my name and you'll find like eight interviews where I like recount like why I joined and, and blah, blah, blah. But, but basically like talking about the book, um, it, it breaks down like this. So I went off to war for like, like 12, 13 years. Right. And like, I, I first went as a soldier, uh, you know, my job was to uh, uh, make military propaganda, like uh, photographing combat operations for Third Infantry Division. Then I got out and went to Afghanistan as a civilian photojournalist um, for like six years. Um, so, spending the bulk of my adult life and some of my boyhood at war. Uh, coming home um, was a really jarring experience, like trying to settle down in Western Massachusetts um, to create this life for myself here. Uh, what I found was the whole world looked different. Um, like everything was painted with, you know, menace and threat. Um, it was clear that um, the sort of character building that people expect uh, going to war or joining the military um, uh, to give them was was primarily uh, a process of like weaponizing all my instincts. Mm -hmm. um, so I photographed what that looked like to me. Um, and that sort of became my uh, like my approach to photography after sort of quitting being a war photographer. Um, so when it came time to make a book, uh, which is something I really wanted to do because, you know, I'd spent most of my career photographing for like online news outlets or stuff that only existed online or in like newsprint, you know, these really ephemeral media that, uh, you know, websites break, like we spent a year and like a quarter million dollars building this uh, interactive website in Flash from Afghanistan. And it was amazing at the time, but it's like Flash is broken. Like you can't look at that website anymore, it's gone. Mm -hmm. uh, so the idea of making a physical object was definitely something uh, like pathological for me that I needed to do. Um, but like, how do you make a book function? How does it like make sense? What's the concept? Um, so with these ideas of um, like having made this edit of like 160 pictures down from like 100,000 pictures, um, all of those editorial decisions serve the concept of the book, um, which is basically what I just said. Like I went off to war for like 13 years. I came back and the world looked different. So like I'm photographing what that looks like to me now, um, which is the, uh, I don't know if you can see like my screen, but this is the actual book. Um, the black and white pictures that are in the beginning and the end. Um, so it's bookended with these photographs from home. Mm -hmm. um, in the front and then 
in the back as well. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, that's what sort of made me feel like I could add something to, uh, uh, to the list of amazing books that have already been done about the wars is by really examining what the process is of like coming home and reconciling with uh, these decisions you made about your life and uh, the consequences they have. It's interesting you say the, uh, the pathological need to make something uh, both concrete and lasting um, as overwhelming and I'm sure um, difficult, painful um, to go through all the years of photographs. Um, is the process of having been able to um, compile this a healing one? A feeling one. Um, healing, healing. Oh, healing, oh God, no. Um, oh. No, it was brutal. Like everything about making a photo book is horrible, um, except like the friends you make and the responses people have to the book. Uh, I mean, that's the only thing I enjoyed or felt <laughs> healing about, like making the book. I mean, it's savage. Like I took all, essentially my life savings uh, and poured it into like producing this book and like self-publishing it, mm -hmm. making it the best I could be. I got really lucky and, you know, I'm with the second edition, I've like almost broken even on the whole project mm -hmm. that's for a book that's been really successful. So like the economics of it are really dire. Um, the 8,000 words of text that I wrote for the book left me essentially catatonic for three days after I finished, oh. you know, it's okay. How, cause they could leave the reader catatonic, sorry, but they're, cause you don't know what you're going to get and you mm -hmm. are so, um, I, it's just razor sharp uh, at every turn. So did you do that? And I was curious how you did that. Was that over a concentrated time or it was, how did you deal with that? It was essentially the last thing I did for the book was wow. writing the text. Um, so I already knew basically what pictures were going to be in the book, basically what order they were going to be in how the concept of the book with the black and white pictures at the beginning and the end, this edit, uh, this sort of kaleidoscopic edit with no captions um, was going to be there. And then the text and these sort of uh, bits of ephemera were going to be broken up into the, into the book in four sort of inserts using like different paper. Um, so I don't know if you can see like uh, I can hold you know, it too. The book itself is most of the mm -hmm. color, the color pictures are all on this like sort of heavy, almost construction paper like mm -hmm. thing. And then when you get to the text, it becomes this thinner sort of gray recycled paper. So there's a change in material. Um, and then there are also these inserts. So these are like screenshots of one of my pictures that's been repurposed. Like I reverse Google image searched it and found it. And this is on this like cheap glossy magazine. Mm -hmm. stock. Um, so that like sort of tactile change, I already knew that's how we were going to do it. Um, and then in thinking like 
so what can I do with the text? Like, how can I make the text function in the object of a book in the way I want? Um, that informed like what I wrote about and, uh, and also like how I referenced the pictures. So I would say like the biggest literary reference or the biggest reference period in how I like conceptualized and made this book what it is, uh, was Kurt Vonnegut's book, Slaughterhouse-Five. So in Slaughterhouse-Five, uh, if, if you don't know it, um, it's uh, Kurt Vonnegut served in World War II. Uh, he was a prisoner of war in Dresden during the firebombing and he was like uh, held captive in the slaughterhouse. Um, and the literary device that Vonnegut uses in that book to convey the disorientation and dislocation of war is that the protagonist is a quote, unstuck in time. So he like involuntarily time travels and goes to different planets and things like that. So I thought what I could do in the book to sort of give a sense of that is to use the text to reference images that are like before and after. Um, to use the text to move you around within the book physically um, to sort of convey that dislocation within the experience of reading. Um, and it's just like one of the cool things you can do with the medium of a book because it's like it's this physical thing that you used to like, you know, if you're reading in English, you read from left to right, you turn the pages. But like if you mess with that experience and make people go back and then you know, lose themselves, you can create this experience just using the medium of what a book is. Um, so, you know, it was all the money I had. It was like my only chance to do this. So I wanted to make it as, as good as it could possibly be. <laughs> well, it certainly got international eyes. You were shortlisted for the Paris Photo Aperture Awards. Uh, it it literally, if you're thinking about it, was heralded as one of the most important books of 2019. And now um, you've second editioned it, um, which I wanna go back and talk to, but my, my, my reference to the text, um, I know when you were sending us back to particular images, but like when you would drop in things that you were thinking about, uh, like your mom, um, uh, or, or Becca's mom, um, like, did you know or set out for key moments that you know you wanted to share? Yeah, I mean, I tried to focus on real inflection points. Uh-huh, okay. Yeah, and part of that was just like responding to books about the wars that I didn't like. Mm -hmm. And like finding these books that were really uh, like well-regarded, but like to me, all it was was like they were using the vernacular of the military in a way that like for people who weren't in that world, like that is interesting in itself. Um, mm -hmm. But I wanted to reach an audience who knew that language and had like either lived the wars or loved ones who had lived the wars um, and make it accessible to them. Um, so I really tried to you know, find these, uh, these examples, these experiences that I felt would resonate with uh, a broad audience. 
um, rather than just like people who are into Dutch photo books or, you know, whatever. <laughs> mm -hmm. Who I did the illustrations I found interesting too. How did that decision come in? Um, so there, uh, the illustrations like this one of the anise, um, you know, like there's a story of this air assault that happened in an anise field. Um, I found these illustrations just on Adobe stock and licensed them. Um, the other illustrations that are in the book are from uh, military field manuals, uh, mm -hmm. mostly like from the 60s through the 90s. Um, I was like, every time I traveled, I would go to army Navy stores and, you know, scrounge around for old field manuals. Cause not a lot of this, that stuff is online and a reasonable resolution. Um, and, uh, you know, half the time they would just give me the dusty old things, you know, nobody wanted to buy those. So yeah, I've got this big collection of musty old infantry manuals from the sixties. <laughs> Wow. Wow. I'm going to stop on this page because I think you can tell us about the lower left image since that was. Yeah. 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 So, so this image, uh, like I, this is probably like my best propaganda picture that I took in the army. Uh, so it was on an aerosol in, in Iraq, uh, sunrise a couple days after Christmas. Um, and, uh, yeah, so this was released through the military, uh, through like public affairs channels, which means it's uh, in the public domain, which means people can use it for anything they want. You want to make a book based on this picture or any of my other pictures, you're welcome to it. Um, I'm the only one, I think, who has the original files. Uh, so good luck getting high resolution <laughs> versions, but have at it. Um, so anyway, I was uh, uh, at home a, a few years ago, like uh, researching lithium batteries for some insane project I was working on this like electric motorbike I was building um, and saw this picture being used in an advertisement for lithium batteries. Um, so that was shocking. Um, so anyway, uh, Google has this really cool feature where you can reverse image search. So I uploaded this picture to Google and uh, found all these places where this picture had appeared. Uh, and I made screenshots of them and I actually made a little book just of the screenshots um, and, you know, just had it uh, coil bound at the local print shop. I think it cost me about, you know, 10 bucks to make. Uh, so I, I found it interesting, like the, the other pictures that were um, like put next to my picture, uh, like, so this one, they're using my picture to sell vape pens, apparently. Um, yeah, it was just really strange the ways people interact with this work and, and what it means to them. And, you know, and then there's also a story in the text that sort of speaks to uh, how soldiers are often uncomfortable with how civilians interact with photography about war and representations of soldiers that, um, you know, they often feel like people process these images as if soldiers are these like one dimensional, like superheroes, um, instead of like, these are actually like highly trained professionals doing complicated things for complicated reasons. Um, and, and it's hard to went with a picture like that, that's so sort of dramatic and cinematic, uh, you don't get any of that. 
um, you just get like, look at these heroes. And that's exactly how the military wanted me to represent uh, soldiers on these operations. Mm -hmm. You were bold in some of the ways in which you um, circumvented expectations. <laughs> it's kind of putting it mildly. <laughs> yeah, I like messing with people's expectations. <laughs> because like you get to a point in your career where like you're familiar with what a war picture is supposed to look like. You're familiar with what your editor wants to see and you just get bored with it and uh, you just start like messing with the system. Um, you know, at least that's sort of where I found myself after, you know, photographing in Afghanistan and making the same pictures everybody else was making and um, not feeling like I was being honest about my own assessment of these wars that I had spent like my entire career covering. Um, so I tried to make these pictures that were, or I tried to like find in the edit, these pictures that were more enigmatic, these pictures that showed uh, like absurdity and strangeness, you know, like this guy, I mean, he's just wearing his elbow pads in the wrong place, but it looks like he has, you know, two sets of elbows. Um, you know, it's just, there's this weirdness. And of course, like, He's strapping on an AK with this monster banana clip in this bedroom, you know, the TV. It's like this domestic space, but there's this like professional warrior. Uh, mm -hmm. um, there was somewhere um, where basically I, I, I made a note of it. Let me see if I can. Um, It was basically being, um, com well, you put it in your words, but I guess uh, the, the one of the, um, inspiration is the wrong word, but what was compelling you was to get into that space that felt like lies. Hmm. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I like for me, the big takeaways of wars, like which I think is particularly relevant in this day and age where like people in America are feeling like civil war is a process that will like glorify their ideology and get them what they want. Like that's not what war is. Um, that's not like what war does. Like war is just like lies and destruction and, you know, makes monsters out of everybody. Like that's, that's what it is. It's not like this, this process that will, that will uh, uh, give you everything you want. Mm -hmm. It just mm -hmm. doesn't function that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's pretty shocking to me after 20 years of continuous warfare that the United States has prosecuted in Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere, um, that that would be such a foreign concept or such a shocking concept. Um, but part of that is uh, like the pictures we've been exposed to and the information that we've been exposed to that reinforces these like simplistic or incorrect ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so certainly like addressing that was uh, a big part of the book as well. You know, cause it's like a book about war. Like, so I have to describe what war is um, uh, at least like in my own, um, experience.
Uh, let's see, I got a question from Nate. After studying war with your camera, are you now anti-war? Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm like necessarily anti-war. I mean, it, it's, I, I think it is a process that has like functionality even in like a neoliberal world order. Um, but it's also something that's just so fundamental to who humans are that it seems like kind of irrelevant to be anti-war. Um, yeah, in this sort of like blanket way. Um, yeah, it's a hard question to answer. So, I mean, I guess to probe on that, are you saying that you can't imagine humans avoiding war? Definitely not. Wait, we're, now we're in different negatives. We're double oh, negatives. Yeah, so, so that no, that's fine. So, is that like humans a way? Humans will never avoid war. Humans will never avoid wars. What you're, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Do you feel? Um, I guess I have two questions about. Do you feel anyone else has? shown war from the complexities that you've been able to yeah of course put together you yeah, yeah. absolutely let me I, I brought a stack of photo books out like all right, uh, all I right. Mean, obviously like text there are many examples all right mm -hmm. so, Geert van Kestren, Why Mr. Why? This book mm. from 2004 is unreal. Uh, so it's printed on this like really cheap newsprint, brilliantly designed in uh, the Netherlands. Like, you know, this book definitely made me seek a designer in the Netherlands. Um, really interesting use of like image and text. Um, and this came out like he was photographing for Newsweek in 2003, 2004. So like a book this smart about the Iraq war came out like so fast, so fast. It's crazy. Like, <laughs> like I went to Iraq in 05. Like that's when I started photographing there. And my book like just came out last year. So like Geert van Kestren was on it. Um, he has another book, um, which is unfortunately out of print and extremely expensive uh, called Baghdad Calling. Um, that I also highly recommend. Um, Tim Hetherington's Infidel. I knew well, you were say that. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely have some problems with this book and like the some of its theses. Mm -hmm. um, like this book is really focused on like the camaraderie and like this culture and this like man Eden, um, which you know to me is like pretty simplistic. Um, and, uh, you know, that wasn't like my experience being in the military, you know, it, it's like people generalize about the military because like, but what they're actually doing is generalizing about infantry platoons. So infantry platoon, like, yeah, you can kind of generalize about, about them. And that's like what this book is. Um, but like infantry platoons are not the military. They are not the war. Um, but the pictures are amazing. The production is amazing. Um, you know, it's it's bound like a, like a Bible almost. Mm -hmm. um, it's got these like lots of really cool ephemera, like the tattoos and stuff like that. 
That was my introduction, so that's why I wondered if it was on there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, probably the most important photo book made about war is Vietnam Inc. Uh, by Philip Jones Griffiths. Uh, so this book came out in 1971. Um, Griffiths basically uh, used the concept of photographing the war in Vietnam as though it were like a corporation as, a, as though he were like documenting a corporation. Um, so, you know, he was looking at it from economic angles, from like supply line angles, from uh, like marketing angles. Um, you know, the design is like very 1970s, like time life thing. It's not an excitingly designed book, but the pictures are incredible. And the concept is definitely worth studying. Um, sometimes like really bad books, uh, you know, like this one was made by a, a, a combat camera soldier like me um, that, you know, really like uh, has all these really cliche pictures and it's printed on terrible paper and, you know, it's like lots of little kids and, you know, just has like this horrible, I mean, it, like, you know, this is the kind of book where it's like, oh, it's okay to show like Iraqi people in pain, but you can't show like soldiers in pain. Yeah, got it. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are plenty of books like this out there um, that I was like reacting against. Peter Van Axmail's Disco Night, September 11th. If Peter hadn't made this book, this is probably what my book would have been. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but he made this book. Um, so it, this book is like, a picture and then like a blurb of text. And the text is, is not like necessarily, um, ha doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the picture. It's just the interaction between those blocks of text. And there are all these nice gatefolds, which are very expensive uh, to put in your book. Um, yeah, it's, it's for 50 bucks, it's a, it's a really nice book. Um, he's actually got another book coming out that, we're publishing together uh, on our new imprint, Mass Books, um, next month. Mm. Uh, that's great. I want you to talk more about Mass Books at some point, but you also made me think of when you're bringing up the economic component, one of the things that stopped me is how you let us know that the cost of a gallon of fuel, yeah, like, like can you, miles. yeah, can you break that down? That was like, yeah, um, so I've mentioned that in the book uh, in terms of like what the embed process is. Um, which, oh, and I should say, like, if you have questions, please throw them in the chat. Yeah, we uh, were uh, sometimes we talk and then open to questions, but I'm fine with that. That'd be great. Yeah, cool. and Deb um, can help monitor that too. Great. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I was I was writing about like what an embed is. So basically, the military provides. Um, like food and shelter and security and transportation for you at no cost. And you can go along with uh, maneuver units on their operations. Um, so I took advantage of this as did like a lot of, you know, mostly white men from the suburbs uh, like me. Um, I grew up north of Boston. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, one time like this helicopter crew made a special trip just to fly me to this like remote little outpost in uh, central Afghanistan in, uh, in Zabul province. 
and uh, I mean, I'm, I probably, I think that that trip probably cost 50 or $60,000. Um, you know, I was looking up like how much fuel a Blackhawk burns in an hour and how long that trip was. And they estimate that the military, the military runs everything on diesel. It's called JP8. And it costs about 400 bucks a gallon to use in Afghanistan once all the transportation and security and logistics costs are factored in. Um, yeah, and it's crazy expensive to fly helicopters, period. That's an interesting um, kind of fact-based information that we uh, are not privy to unless you actually go looking for it, or if there's some investigative journalist looking for it. Um, do you feel, or I should say, how do you feel about media's role now? Like how, I mean, we, we're, we're, we're unpacking how much propaganda has fueled it and functioned is what's the state of that now? Or what's the um, prognosis for being able to change that? Uh, yeah, I mean, the media is like, I mean, first off, there's no such thing as the media. Um, I think most of the time when we talk about the media, we're talking about like legacy formats like um, TV news and mm -hmm. um, maybe major newspapers. And uh, the, like the idea that the media has to like cover both sides and be balanced um, often hamstrings them when they're dealing, when they're trying to negotiate with uh, like propaganda or, you know, just total lies. Um, the idea that like the lies are always newsworthy because, um, you know, somebody in authority said them so even if you call them lies, like people are still getting access to the lies, they're still reading the lies, the lies are still having their intended effect. Um, and, you know, the media just acts as a conduit. Um, mm -hmm. that. Uh, so, yeah, trying to reconcile with that is definitely a major challenge of our age. And, and I definitely feel like you know, having worked in propaganda and, um, you know, worked with media embeds on both sides um, makes it so, you know, that's that's something I, I think about a lot. What do you mean media embeds on both sides? Yeah, so part of my job when I was a soldier uh, was to facilitate media embeds. Um, so yeah, so media are not embedded with the military out of the kindness of the military's heart or because the military believes that uh, reporters have a right to cover military operations. Um, the military is, at the end of the day, only focused on one thing, which is winning wars. Um, so uh, the embed program exists to place reporters in close proximity um, with small unit fighters uh, in, in combat areas. Uh, and the idea is that like, if reporters and soldiers share hardship, share risk, share deprivation, share the same crappy food, um, that that uh, shared experience will create bonds of affection and those bonds of affection will lead to more positive coverage. 
um, it worked really well in the Gulf War um, mm -hmm. and uh, to some extent in Iraq and in Afghanistan, it kind of all fell apart. Um, but at the same time, if you look at Infidel or Restrepo, I mean, there's like, That's I mean, there's is. a lot of like adulation going on in these and you can mm -hmm. see like how much, you know, Tim and Sebastian like care about these, uh, these people as, and, uh, you know, uh, lionize them. So, mm -hmm. And, you know, one of them, uh, Sal Gionta got the Medal of Honor um, on those operations. And, you know, those soldiers are all celebrities now. Mm -hmm. um, I got one more question from Nate. Uh, how do I decide which pictures will be larger um, spread over two pages? The gutter. So uh, that's uh, called a double truck or um, and uh, full bleed means they go to um, uh, to the end, uh, to the edge. There's no border around them. Uh, so basically, um, the black and white pictures of the beginning of, and the end are placed on the page in a more sort of traditional photo book way and they're on this like pretty ivory coated paper um, and they have like a bit of spot varnish over them so the picture itself is a little bit glossier um, you know it's this very like art book production um, whereas you know these pictures are like full bleed gutter runs right through them um, on rough uncoated paper uh, I just um, I just wanted uh, you know, to create like a difference um, between the pictures. Uh, and, and I felt like, you know, this is a pretty small book, you know, it's about six by nine inches. You hold it pretty close to you. And the fact that it's full bleed gives you sort of a more intimate experience with it. Um, you know, it's a small enough book that lays flat enough that you can hold it in one hand and, and flip the pages and, you know, hold it close. Um, so yeah, having most of the work be, be full bleed um, was, uh, was, I think the right design decision. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the design process? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, let's see, I'm just reading this question, um, by Marius, uh, like more of a comment. That's cool. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Stacy's book. Sorry. Um, uh, uh, anyway, um, yeah, so in like making this book, uh, you really, if, if you're going to spend like 30 grand making 1500 books, like you can't do it all yourself. Um, you really need to hire like a proper designer. There's just, there's so much skill involved and so much knowledge that I don't have that is necessary to create this object. Um, and, uh, you know, so many ways that you can fail if you don't know about like how the different paper types work together mm -hmm. and like what font is the right choice and, and things like that. Um, so I, I created this PDF that was like a bunch of these pictures, actually none of the black and white work was in the, in the PDF, but like some letters I had written in Iraq, like all this stuff that never made it into the final book. Um, just this weird collection of ephemera and pictures. And I sent it to a couple of designers who I thought might be interested in the project. Um, so the designer who did Infidel uh, um, reached out to, to him and uh, Toon Vander Hygen, who's probably like the most 
famous designer, but fortunately I reached out to Coomer and Herman, um, which uh, they're these, this great little design shop in the Netherlands because I had seen this project they did called the Sochi Project. So Sochi Project was um, like this photographer, Rob Hornstra documented like the Sochi Winter Olympics, which was a winter Olympics held in a subtropical war zone. Um, so there was like a dark humor to that project that I, that I felt like really came through in the design. So they made all these like little books and this book is called Kiev. And it's all these pictures made with this broken camera. It's like a Russian camera. And the like binding is also broken and it like falls apart. It's so fun. Um, it's like the coolest little book. And I was like, yeah, I definitely want to do something crazy and work with them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, since the design uh, like inspirations were these very utilitarian things, like this is an MRE package for chili with beans. Um, these like very sort of straightforward, unsentimental, cheap, uh, functional uh, objects, like they needed to do that in um, like an understated way and not a cartoonish way. So we got the cover cardboard as close as we could to the MRE package. The book itself is about the size of an MRE, you know, but it's not like banging over the head with this stuff. It's, it's, it's meant to just kind of be like, you know, uh, uh, like if you know, you know, and if you don't, it, it doesn't matter. It's fine. Mm -hmm. it works either way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's these subtle things that add up to a, the layered concept being extremely strong. Yeah. And I mean, I really think the, um, like for me, the fact that like folks who are not like students of Dutch photo book design still like are like are excited about the design and like they are into like how the book handles and how it like makes it a cool experience that like totally justifies it to me like i'm not trying to impress uh, anyone um in like the the photo book world uh that's not who i made the book for at all um but i wanted to use these really cool tools that they've developed uh and honed over the years to like do something cool for people who might be interested in, in this book. Mm -hmm. I was thinking back, this is circling back to one of the original uh, ideas that you shared in terms of the inspiration of Slaughterhouse-Five. Mm -hmm. I was thinking that your um, conceptualization of a second moon was yeah. really aligned with that. That, that, just, that just riveted me. That was poignant to the point where that's really hard for me to not like that will stick with me always that's just that was just it was that was an incredible um metaphor which is why i guess i go back to how you wrote the text and mm -hmm. you know eight thousand words that like completely blow one out of the water i mean it's incredible thanks Sib. um so actually like the second moon thing. So the idea is like in the text, I'm trying to describe like what it's like to have all your instincts weaponized, like what it's like to have that be like part of your DNA now to like feel, feel the war like still in your own mind. Um, so it was almost like this, like a second invisible moon in the sky 
creating this like tidal force, like moving me around, making me like understand the tactical geometry of, of, uh, of any space that I'm in. Um, but actually I was reading Murakami's uh, 1Q84, which a lot of people don't like. It's a pretty ponderous book, got it. Um, but uh, there is like a second moon in that book. Um, and I felt like it was an apt metaphor um, but, but in Slaughterhouse-Five, like the dislocation of time travel um, and, you know, what it feels like when the things you believe and the things that are in your DNA are like disrupted. Um, like, you know, one time I like, I don't know, out of the corner of my eye, I thought I saw the full moon like in the middle of the day, like high in the sky, which is like totally impossible. That's not how the sun and the moon work. Um, and it like really was this like staggering moment. And then I realized it was just a cloud. Um, but yeah, so I thought that was like a good um, uh, sort of mechanism um, to use. So yeah, uh, I got a question. Um, uh, speaking of audience, who is your audience for this book? Um, how did considering your audience's impact just, uh, how did your, considering your audience impact how you decided to present this work? So it did a lot. Um, I really did not wanna make like a memoir. Like the book is very personal and I'm writing about my own experience, but it's not, but the reason I did that is not because I think like my story is important or that I'm important in any way, it's not. It's just like a mechanism to communicate um, this very specific, these very specific arguments that I wanted to make about the war. Um, so in terms of audience, I felt like I had a good opportunity um, to get a little bit like experimental with it because like war and veterans and trauma are themes of general interest in America and to some extent Europe and to some extent the rest of the world. Um, so I knew there was an audience that who would be interested in the book, even though like I'm kind of an outsider in like photojournalism. Like I've never, you know, wanted representation from Magnum or Seven or any of them. Although I do work with Seven a fair amount, um, but uh, yeah, I've always just been like the guy doing this <laughs> this weird stuff, <laughs> doing it my way. Um, and I've been lucky enough to like have grant funded work uh, pay for, for it all. Um, but uh, yeah, I, and I mean, I think like in editing the text and editing the pictures, I wanted to like, I really considered, I mean, not just like a specific audience, but like just any person who was looking at it. So it's like, how do I convince you to turn the page? Like, how do I convince you to like keep looking at this book and keep thinking about it. So like anything to me where like the book started to drag or, uh, you know, seemed like redundant, uh, got axed out. Um, so that, you know, process of, you know, going from like a hundred thousand pictures to like, let's say 2000 pictures were like plausible candidates for the book um, down to like 160 like the razor you use to do that is like informed by what you want to say and is it like redundant can you get rid of it like in the text it's like is there one word you can get rid of in this sentence um because any any kind of 
fat like that um, just interferes with the experience of, of looking at the book. Was that, sorry, was the edit uh, influenced at all by your designers? Um, so the concept definitely was influenced uh, by the designers in terms of like, you know, we were, we hadn't even really looked at the black and white work yet. And we were trying to make this book with just the color pictures from Iraq and Afghanistan and, and some of the stuff. And I don't know, I just felt like it wasn't like a complete object with that stuff. So I, I showed Jeroen Coomer um, the uh, black and white pictures and he was like, well, obviously these need to be in here. This is like a really important part of the book. And then it was his idea to bookend them to make like one section in the beginning and one section at the end. Cause I, you know, I'm not a designer. Like I had been thinking about like these crazy ideas. Like we make three books in one slipcase or something. And you know, that, <laughs> uh, other people who were helping me with it were like, you understand like that's going to increase the cost by like 200%. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of slipcases, uh, I think Lisa Hersey is on the call. Uh, I did make like a limited edition of like 30 books. Yeah, I, I have a couple that. left. So mm -hmm. Lisa made these amazing slip cases and um, I like got a laser cut stencil and spray painted them, you know, like you would spray a, a duffel bag uh, uh, like before you deploy and yeah, but fits in here. So it's like a nice protective thing. Um, and uh, yeah, just a super cool object. So for the people who are like, you know, Dutch photo book geeks or, or something like that, you know, or like a library that collects this kind of thing, there's, you know, there's 30 of them. You can, you can get one. Mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, for most people, this is plenty. Do you want to talk a little bit about the second edition and, and your mass books? Sure. Um, yeah, so Red Hook editions, um, doesn't really exist anymore, uh, unfortunately. They published the first edition. Um, it just uh, wasn't like a functional enough operation uh, for me to do another book with them. Um, so Peter Van Oxmail, who of uh, Red Hook Editions and I sort of broke off and made our own imprint basically just because like uh, I had a second edition coming out. He has a book coming out at the end of the month like we needed an imprint. Um, Self-publishing is like a totally reasonable thing to do in photo book world. Like if you're writing a novel, like self-publishing is not ideal. Um, but with photo books, it's like, if you wanna have a chance of breaking even or, or even making a little money, like it's your only option. Um, so it's, it's like considered legit. So, you know, mass books is, is um, you know, these uh, attention service members a self-published book. Um, but the idea with mass books, like we're still bouncing around ideas. I was talking with Peter last night about it. You know, we want to make like accessible, inexpensive books, um, that challenge systems of power, um, and are not like enormous, like boat anchors for your coffee table. Um, but like cool, small things like uh, like you're in Schumer, like he wants to get involved and like, you know, maybe we can make something like this. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Speaking of books that are out of print and very expensive now. Um, 
yeah, that's too bad. Um, but yeah, so the second edition is here we are in 2020. Um, I had intended to just uh, reprint the first edition and say like second printing. Um, but it seemed clear that like there was an opportunity to connect some threads between the idea that like all the lies and chaos and violence have consequences for our for who we are not just as individuals who participated in the war but for our broader society um and like our varying levels of complicity um so i did travel to dc this summer um during the protests in the aftermath of uh, george floyd's murder and i didn't go to dc to try and like appropriate the black community's grief and pain. I, I really didn't feel like that it was my place to do that. Um, but I did want to photograph the military buildup around the White House and the militarization of the police um, that are around and the sort of consequence of like what that looks like. Um, so there's one photograph from DC in the new edition um in the black and white work and then there's i swapped out a couple of pictures from the first edition like from afghanistan just pictures i thought worked better in the edit and um like the screenshots were not well printed in the first edition so i adjusted the files to make them better um it's it's a it's a very similar book to the first edition um mm -hmm. but I do think it's been updated a little for 2020 just to draw a few important threads to where we between um, what we've been doing uh, for the last 20 years and where we find ourselves now. So it's all connected. Did you write any text about that in the second edition? No, I left the text alone. I appreciated your glossary. Oh, <laughs> I actually wrote that a long time ago in Afghanistan. Um, I mean, I updated it a little for the book and went through some edits, but yeah, no, that's... Oh, my word. <laughs> yeah, there, I mean, there's so much you can learn about like what it was like there just based on the language. Oh. Um, you know, some of it is like, uh, you know, like ROE, that's rules of engagement. So that's mm. the conditions under which a service member is allowed to use force in a defensive or offensive manner. And the permissiveness of these rules fluctuates dramatically based on military goals and political atmosphere. So, yeah, ROE is like an important thing to to um, to know about. But you know, also it's like uh, you know, self-licking ice cream cone. Exactly. Like that's definitely something you're going to know about if you're in like military or politics. Uh, that's a military doctrine or political process that appears to exist in order to justify or aggrandize its own existence often producing irrelevant indicators of its own success. So I don't feel like the glossary of terms is like that critical a part of the book. Like you can completely ignore it and the book still like totally functions without it. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of like a little bit of bonus material at the back. Totally, because it gives you, uh, yeah, I mean. Yes, dispatches. Oh, sorry, Siv. I'm just no, no, go ahead, go ahead, respond. Yeah, no, Michael Harris dispatches was also like, I mean, not just a, a important point of reference for this book, but just like one of the greatest works on war that's ever been written. And I mean, I think I read it in high school the first time, totally blew me away. Um, and yeah, there is, uh, there is some of that glossary 
in dispatches. What I wanted to focus on for this glossary was not like jargon so much. Uh, like, mm -hmm. you know, you don't need to know like the military abbreviations for these like complicated behaviors and things like that. But the slang is what I really wanted to, photo, uh, oh. to focus on. Cause there's so much that slang tells you about a culture. Um, the part about the sergeant and like how this is now passe and you have to go like new lingo and new jargon. Oh yeah, yeah. I thought I that mean, was amazing. Yeah, being uh, like being like an Iraq veteran, particularly from like the early days of the war and going to Afghanistan with, you know, soldiers who are in, you know, middle school or elementary school in Iraq. I mean, they look at me and their their first sergeant, like we're like we're talking about the nom, you know, back <laughs> in Baghdad in 05. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Um, Nate asked me about the technical. Um, I, uh, I shoot with a Nikon D800, a 50 millimeter lens, sometimes a 35. I use Lightroom. That's pretty much it. I, uh, yeah, nothing fancy. I like what you said, I think before we even um, started, uh, something about I take the pictures I want to take or like you're a selective shooter. You're, yeah. you're, you're not going to go out and shoot a thousand captures and then come back and see what you got. Definitely not. Not the way you work. Um, I, I think some of that just comes from like age and experience. Um, and, you know, that I'm hesitant to want to, you know, deal with 2000 pictures to look through at the end of the day. Um, mm -hmm. I could just as easily look through 300. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, 100,000 pictures over 17 years is not that many. Um, for uh, for a professional photographer, um, but yeah, that's how I work. I, you know, I, I keep my equipment really simple too. You know, like I, I just use a fifty or a thirty-five. I don't use zoom lenses. You know, um, I don't use fancy equipment uh, in general. I mean, I do have a Leica and a Hasselblad, but I don't use them very often. Mm. Those are more of toys. Yeah. Say that again, they're more those, what? Those are just toys. And you know, sometimes I actually do bring like a toy camera in Afghanistan just to like kind of break it up a little. Not like I'm that I'm gonna use it for anything, but it's like just kind of fun to have like a weird little plastic camera or something. I brought this camera to Afghanistan one time that's it's called a Lomo spinner. Um, you pull a string and let it go, and the camera spins around and in theory it's 360, but it's more like 412 um, and it like pulls a you know strip of film around uh, and makes these weird panoramics that you know your head is always in in the picture because the camera spins around and you know I, I I mean one soldier thought I was like detonating an idea <laughs> like um, yeah he like took a dive but uh, uh, uh yeah but that kind of stuff breaks the ice sometimes as well uh I was thinking because you write about the grapes, I was happy to see these, this image. Let's circle back to your text. Yeah, I mean, there aren't a ton of pictures of Afghans in particular, um, and not that many pictures of Iraqis, um, because like, again, it's like, I don't want to speak for them. Um, you know, there are, there are Afghan photographers who are doing a really good job of speaking for the Afghan uh, people. Um, but yeah, that picture I, I thought was just sort of a quiet way of 
you know, closing out the um, um, the Afghan uh, side of the book. And, you know, also like for me, it just kind of referenced this quote from, oh, I forget, was it, um, I don't think it was Mullah Omar, but it was some like high ranking member of the Taliban. And, you know, he was speaking about the, the Americans saying like, well, you have the watches, but we have the time. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Huh. I also thought that because you refer referenced how amazing those grapes were, and Lord knows you didn't have many options for food that was memorable. Um, I just thought that was a really interesting balance to bring know. that food in. Yeah, sounds good. Food in Iraq's good. There's all kinds of options. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking when you're um, in on base or in uh, bedded or yeah, some of well, the stuff I mean, you talked about. Just like being in a you know hotel cafeteria kind of thing. Um, there's there's a fair amount of options, like particularly at a, at a big base, you know, it is kind of one of those places where you see a lot of disconnects. But yeah, if you're like at a little outpost in the middle of nowhere, um, you know, hopefully you've got a good platoon sergeant who will let you, you know, get chickens off the local economy and not just, you know, eating, uh, eating this kind of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that you said has a five year shelf life. Oh, at least. I mean, this is older than that, and I'd still eat it. <laughs> wow. There was one, I, I'm ready for any other questions and, and can go back, but I, I was curious about, you said that you talked a lot or have a dialogue with yourself um, between the image that your mom sent you, that was the dog, and then the one that was taken at Abu Ghraib that got such notoriety so and how that was so seminal iconic or as you would I think inferred um it was truer than a lot of other things that hmm. photojournalism gave us yeah. yeah for sure um yeah I mean when you think I mean you just think about like the iconic image like the most iconic image of 2020 like for example like what visual information from this unbelievable year had a broader impact than any other i think it's pretty clearly like the video of george floyd being murdered so that was made by a 17 year old shooting vertical video on a on a cell phone so like the fact that visual information is vernacular does not diminish its power whatsoever um and i mean I've, I've never thought of myself as a spot news photographer i've never thought of myself as you know photographer who's interested in capturing like action or you know what i call precious moments um which you know even when it's like people shooting at each other like when the shells are coming out of the rifle just right i mean that to me is a precious moment you know um i don't really go in for that kind of thing um because i, I think it like diminishes the uh like importance of what happens it's just you know you're you're saying like oh i'm a great equipment operator you know i use the camera in this great way um but yeah i mean that that's something that photojournalists have um have all had to deal with is the fact that like no pictures made by photojournalists have had a significant impact 
on the wisdom uh, or um, uh, kindness of the war's architects. Um, the only photographs that, from Iraq that functioned that way were the photographs of soldiers torturing detainees um, at Abu Ghraib. And um, yeah, and those pictures were taken by soldiers, like not as an act of whistleblowing, but as an act of like boasting of their war crimes or like having fun. Um, so I think like the fact that the photographer's intent um, was to brag about this has a lot to do with how powerful those images are. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the photographer's intent has so much more effect on how a picture reads than what equipment you use or how much training you have. Um, yeah, I mean, oftentimes training is, is a hindrance in photography. Like, you know, generally like the trajectory of, of a photographer, uh, particularly photojournalist is like, you start off not knowing what you're doing, taking all these crazy pictures that are all like messed up and the moment is wrong. And then you start to figure out how to like work the camera and all your pictures, and then, and you have a good sense of like what a news picture is supposed to look like. And then you take these really boring pictures that are nobody wants to look at for like a couple of years. And then you figure out like how to get some of that magic back. Um, mm. So I uh, often, uh, I really enjoy working with photographers who are struggling to get out of that rut where they like have these, uh, they're operating off of all these assumptions about what a picture is supposed to look like. And it's, uh, I mean, the best thing you can do in education is to just blow up every, uh, someone's assumptions. Just <laughs> Which since you like to blow up expectations and assumptions, you're a good educator. Yeah, I'm kind of a bomb thrower. Yeah. And what about, do you want to talk about um, how your education folds into what you're doing now between ground truth and um, uh, Project for America? Um, yeah, so uh, I didn't really go to college. I went in the army. Um, then I went to UMass on the GI Bill. Um, but being a 28-year-old coming right out of Iraq into college, I was not well suited for the constraints of that environment. Um, so uh, I basically just informed the journalism department at UMass that I was going to Afghanistan to work as a journalist and that I was gonna graduate with a journalism degree in three years and that's how it was gonna be. Um, so uh, yeah, they went for it, um, thankfully. And then uh, I had enough of the GI Bill left to go to grad school and got an MFA in photography, um, which I would highly recommend doing for free um, if you can. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, and that uh, really helped me like understand what a photo book is and how to like sort of articulate my idea, how to translate like uh, my perceptions of the war into a physical object. Um, yeah. Uh, but education is uh, like, I, I think it's, photojournalism has a really proud tradition of mentorship. Um, Gary Knight uh, mentored me um, after I left the army and that experience changed my life. And it's my responsibility to pay that forward. Um, so yeah, I have a number of young protégés at various stages in their career. Um, and uh, working for a report 
Report for America is also a really rewarding experience, um, trying to rebuild visual news and trying to like unfuck photojournalism where like, you know, to get away from this kind of photojournalism where you just sort of waggle a wide angle lens at somebody who's talking to a writer and call that like news, like a, a picture, like um, that doesn't add value to a newspaper. So like we really focus on like, you know, how do you, how do you get your community to see itself reflected in, in its newspaper? Like how do you use the tools of photography to accomplish that? And you know, I'm not trying to like turn out like a bunch of crazy artists who are like um, uh, causing problems in their newsrooms. I'm trying to like use the tools of art and the scrutiny um, that artists look at their work um, as a way of improving photojournalism. Uh, you know, I always, like in, in grad school, I definitely felt like there were two species of photographers. There are artists who use photography and photographers who use art. I'm definitely the latter. Say that again. So photographers who use art is your camp and the other is? Artists who use photography. Artists use, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there are people who like, they're just artists and they use different mediums. Like they go back and forth between them. Like some of them are using a camera because they want to say something about photography itself or something. It's like often abstract rather than representational. Um, but I'm always a photographer first. You had mentioned something about, um, I mean, I kept wanting to, um, to post and say, so you want to, so you think you want to be a photojournalist or like, <laughs> I wanted you to, um, I mean, you've, you've seen it in so many ways and you're part of changing the field. Um, what would you say to people? I mean, is the, is the road to go finding mentorship or how do people find a path in this? Yeah, I mean, mentorship is really important. Um, and, uh, you know, if you reach out to photographers, like, I mean, start by asking questions. Um, you know, I get emails from photographers all the week and uh, like all, every week. And, you know, I try to be really generous with my time um, because, you know, when I was working as a photographer, uh, like in the army, you know, I reached out to, uh, you know, experienced photographers who are covering the war um, and got like a lot of really useful advice and sometimes advice that's not that useful. Um, you know, there are plenty of great photographers who are terrible educators. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just how it is. It's a different skill set. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the important thing to like, you know, make it as a photographer or whatever, um, is to photograph, to start by photographing work that's really important to you. Um, not by like trying to make, you know, the most amazing picture or go to the most important story or something like that, but to photograph a story where, you know, your interaction with the subject matter means something like that'll teach you more about like what photography is and how it, how it really functions. Um, than like just sort of jumping into the scrum with, uh, you know, a bunch of, uh, well-paid equipment operators, um, 
you know, and trying to like mimic what they do. Unless you want to be like a DC political photographer, but like I'm the wrong person to talk to to go into that kind of thing. Great. Well, I think we've got a few more minutes. If people have questions, I'm sure we could unmute and ask them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, looks like there's a question from Joseph. What were your thoughts on DC seeing and experience the military presence? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's military police thing. Um, you know, obviously, like, I've never been a law enforcement officer. Most of my life have, you know, been sort of at odds with that community. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think, like, for me, what really drives me nuts is, like, the cosplay that is meant to intimidate people. So, like, people... Like if you want to like dress up as a Navy SEAL and go like reenact battles like with airsoft guns with your buddies, that's awesome. Like I've been to Civil War reenactments. It's so fun. Um, like everyone's just like into history and like doing a cool adventure. But like if you're dressing up like a Navy SEAL because like you think uh, and posing in front of the state house or something to like, you know, defend your freedom or something like what you're really saying is you want all the authority that that comes with being in the military with none of the discipline with none of the training with none of the regulation. Um, it's yeah to, to me it's uh, it's pretty gross to, to see that stuff. Um, yeah, that's yeah, but seeing that in DC. Um, I mean, I was going like. I got in, got my pictures and got out. I was not really going there to um, uh, really dive into the story deeply. Uh, there were some pictures that I wanted to do. I mean, the COVID situation uh, was pretty bad when I was there. Um, and uh, yeah, so I just wanted to get in, get out as quick as I could while getting the pictures I wanted to get for the second edition. Yeah. Um, oh, right. Uh, mentioning uh, Ann Mee Lee. Um, yeah, she was able to photograph um, like training operations stateside. And I, I should have said that. Like, so if you reach out to uh, public affairs officers at bases, um, like, you know, so Ann Mee Lee photographed a bunch at Fort Irwin, California, um, out in the desert in, in SoCal there. And uh, yeah, you just reached out to the, uh, right, our 29 stumps just, just north of uh, Irwin. Um, you can uh, usually get in on like a training operation or something. Makes me think of um, the dual books that Debbie Cornwall has put out. Uh, Welcome to Camp America, which was based in um, the photo work was from Guantanamo, and then her latest book, uh, Necessary Fictions, which was on uh, military operations here, preparing for going overseas. Mm -hmm. Specific. Uh, both uh, her first book also was uh, shortlisted. Mm -hmm. I think, was that the year before yours, I think? I thought it was two, but not sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, the Aperture shortlist thing was great. Um, you know, having a self-published book, uh, being on the shortlist meant I didn't have to, 
convince like every bookstore like individually that like the book was legit or that you know that somebody should review it um so yeah it helped uh it helped a lot in in that regard and um sort of the nuts and bolts of publishing but in terms of like uh you know e-commerce and selling books through your website and amazon i mean you know there's there's a bunch of books and there's a digital like a thermal label printer and there's like a big roll of tape um and some software that keeps it all together so um it's it's actually like a pretty approachable project if you like whether you want to spend like a ton of money making a book or uh whether you want to make uh like a little zine or something like distributing this stuff yourself is totally doable Yeah, I think people are um, very much interested in trying to understand self-publishing and and the roles that publishers play. And I'm really glad that you were able to talk about uh, the role of designers. Mm. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, traditionally, like that's something a publisher does is they get you the designer and the text editor and, uh, you know, the person, the order fulfillment and, and stuff like that. Um, but because the profit margins are so low in photo books. Um, so for example, like my first edition cost me like $22 a book to make. And then I was selling it for like 40 or 45. Um, so, you know, that's like what a 50% profit margin. Usually like for a $40 book, uh if you're going to get like a publisher involved you've got about six dollars to spend on the production maybe less um so doing it yourself like allows you to spend more money on like stuff that's really important like hiring a great designer and using awesome materials and printing at wilco art books in the netherlands instead of uh you know somewhere that's not a nato ally which was a non-starter for me for this book um <laughs> Yeah, there wasn't really a plausible way to produce it in America. Um, there are excellent printers in America. Um, they're extremely expensive. And I do not feel like there is a binder in America that could handle the complexity of this. Um, so this book has five different paper stocks and opens dead flat. Um, that's you're going to want to go to like Germany or the Netherlands for that. What is that called when it's able to open dead flat? Um, well, so there are a couple of uh, strategies you can use to like achieve that. Mm -hmm. um, so what this is, is called open spine binding. Mm -hmm. um, usually you see open spine books with a bunch of glue and string around mm -hmm. the, uh, I've, I'm sure I've got a couple, um, but uh, the problem with open spine bound books is they're not that durable. The glue eventually dries out and they kind of fall apart. Mm -hmm. The linen band that's placed over the open spine binding mm -hmm. gives it a ton of durability. Like you can throw this across the room. It's not going to get damaged. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, uh, the linen is flexible. So it still opens. Mm -hmm. um, to do a hardcover book that opens flat requires a different strategy. Um, I think Peter's book opens 
pretty well. But basically, you need to have some space for the spine to get out of the way. Mm -hmm. You kind of mm -hmm. see how, mm -hmm. like, when it opens up. Yep. Um, whereas, like, a more cheaply produced book, the spine doesn't. doesn't. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate what you said about it being able to be held in one hand and close up, like, um, and I really appreciate the, um, I, I like the soft cover and, and just like literally how it feels in your hand. And um, as you go through it, you feel like you're, um, I don't know, you're breaking it in almost. It's just, it's a, it's a really interesting design. Yeah, I like how if you like put down a cup of coffee on the cover, like you're gonna get a coffee ring, you know. <laughs> well, this has been this is mine has traveled a lot, and it's in it's in good shape uh, for that. So I think we're getting close to wrapping. I want to know if there's any other questions or anything, Ben, you want to say or cover or give us any reference or anything to think about. Yeah, um, no, I'm at your service. Uh, so Nate asked what my opinion of Blurb is for self-publishing. Um, Blurb is really useful because it's just so easy to use. Um, so let me just find something really quick. So these are two Blurb books I made. Um, like one I made like basically as in a catalog for some exhibitions uh, that I did, this uh, traveling exhibition called Endgame Afghanistan. Um, so, you know, it's perfect bound, which means the it's glued to the spine, so it does not open well. Mm -hmm. um, but the printing is pretty good. And, uh, you know, these cost me like uh, 10 bucks a piece to make. Um, and, you know, you can sell them for 25 or something for somebody who, who goes to a show. So it's like kind of a nice, thing for a little object like that. Um, this is a more like experimental book uh, called I've Killed Have You, um, where I was just like trolling soldiers and veterans Facebook pages uh, mm. and just like taking, just screenshotting like pictures and just arranging it in a book. So this is like really crappy black and white printing. Like this printing process is meant for text, not pictures. So it's like really grainy and choppy. But this cost four dollars to make. Um, so you know, if you've just got like a little idea, like I mean, this idea is kind of one-dimensional, um, but you know, you can just like make a little book from it. Uh, sometimes it's good to have like a physical object, something you can like flip through, so you can see that experience of going from one page to the next. Um, rather than uh, like looking at it on a PDF, which is a really different experience. It almost feels like um, the book is part of your creative process. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I, I wanted like, in order to make this, I feel like I had to make some of these mm -hmm. to like sort of understand, you know, just to like learn about how it works and yeah. like, learn about the different decisions you have to make and you know the consequences for just using like sort of default settings and things like that and not considering every aspect of it mm -hmm. you know, like consequences of the binding uh, are like the damn book doesn't open all the way <laughs> like i didn't know <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, all those choices and they do have consequences. And, and then you have to also factor in like you learn too about what what's feasible financially and what are your compromises and what you're not willing to compromise on. Wow. Yeah, yeah right. I mean, there are obviously compromises like there are, uh, you know, there are ways like this book, even though it's super custom, like has to be arranged like, you know, I can't uh, like the text uh, inserts. I can't just move those like four pages to the left, like the binding process doesn't work that way. Like they have to be where they are. So, you know, you define, you, de you design the book around the realities of the object. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep, those limitations or they're not even limitations. They're just, you know, a lot of times that makes for good design. Mm -hmm. It's uh, yeah, great. Do we have any other questions before we wrap? I'm not reading the chat because I've got two screens open, but not that one. So I'm reading the chat. Yeah. Okay. If anyone wants to unmute. Okay. Cool. Um, and Great. you know, I'm uh, reach out to me anytime. Uh, you know, my just Google my name. You'll find my uh, website, and you can email me uh, from there. Um, it's uh, photobrody at gmail.com. That's f-o-t-o brody. Um, and uh, yeah, always happy to like look at work or uh, or talk about this stuff. Yeah. And we'll put um, what we do is we send a follow up to all of our participants with a list of the resources because what happens like just like you brought those photo books to our attention like we'll we'll put links to those um, and and your information. Um, so thank you everyone for coming. I'm just going to tell you that we've got. Um, we have two weeks, we do this every other week. And the next one that we're going to do is a book by Matt Eck. And uh, it's really fun to, for me, to jump between um, all the different genres uh, and, and what we learn from each. And, um, you know, I think I mentioned to you, um, Ben, my, I, I have a very personal uh, experience having a veteran brother uh, who I watched uh, try to integrate life before, uh, during, and after, um, and the impact as well for us as family members. Uh, and um, just as a note, so he was in Vietnam, and it was such a challenge. His uh, what, what what came full circle for him is uh, uh, number one he he got sober which was great because he came back not so uh, from war and um, that took a while and then he um, ironically got into uh, running in his like maybe 50s and he uh, has run New York City Marathon uh, which he probably did when he was in his somewhere in his 60s and he said that running that um all that running helped him uh he does deal with ptsd and um and he felt like that was a homecoming that he'd never had i thought that was a really interesting uh experience so um i don't know that many veterans could give a what i would consider on some level a gift like you did with this book um, so thank you for that.
Thanks so much for having me, Seb. And thanks You're everyone welcome. for all your great questions and for tuning in. I, I really appreciate it. You know, like I said, like making a photo book is awful, but this is nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's, I, I, but, but making it, I get that it was awful, but did, do you feel like it put away anything for you? No. In your own personal? No. no. <laughs> all right. Was no, curious. I just described what was there. Yeah. 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 I mean, um, but I hope that it has, I mean, I think it does have the functionality of, uh, like explaining to my loved ones or like helping them understand like what I really went through. And I really hope that it has that functionality for other people. I think that that's what I'm speaking to. I think yeah. it really does. Yeah. Which is a gift. Yeah. So sorry for the brutality, but it's going to circle out in a lot of good ways. <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah. All right. Well, everyone be well and, um, and be safe. And uh, thanks for coming. And Ben, thank you for being so generous with your process. We, I know I learned a lot. Thanks. Yeah. All right. All right. Take care.